Well, this has been an eventful week, hasn't it? <laughs> Just a week ago, uh, the prognostica prognostications for Tuesday's midterm elections were positive or negative, depending on your political persuasion or party. Uh, then Tuesday came and went, and it was not the speculated red wave, but merely a red ripple. And then this morning, not even that. Lots of speculation as to why the polls or pundits were wrong. Early voting favors a certain party. Let's blame it on Trump. He's an easy target. And we still don't have the final numbers as to the control of the House. Fingers crossed, moaning, groaning, hoping. Then to put an exclamation on this woeful week, we ended with Tropical Storm Nicole, gray, windy, flooding, dumping several inches of rain. So it's a good thing, isn't it, that our hope is not in horses or chariots, kings or presidents, governors or Congress, Republicans or Democrats. It isn't, right? Perhaps your spirits are a bit like the weather the last few days, dark and gray, rainy days and Mondays always get me down. You're feeling discouraged and depressed, even blue. Well, you are in the right place today because I'm here to tell you that there's coming a day when national and global events will get much worse directed toward Jesus and his followers and the message today is, cheer up, heaven wins. Keep prophesying, John. Oh, you, you thought since you voted on Tuesday and your party won or the other one lost, things would be okay. That's what you thought. That maybe our national course could be corrected close the southern border, lower gas prices, control out-of-control inflation and spending and pending recession, deal with global warming, wrest control of our public education system away from the liberals and back to the parents. Is that what you thought? <laughs> Where is your hope? You do know a usually conservative state in the Northwest just voted. Now, our governor did it several years ago. Our ungodly governor did it several years ago when he vetoed the Born Alive legislation. But an entire state voted to allow a child to die who was still alive in a so-called botched abortion. Now, if you don't know, a botched abortion is when the child is born still breathing. Alive. And so the vote was, by this state, was to allow the baby to die. Kill it outside the womb, because Molech is still alive and well in our country. It seems clear that our world, certainly our nation, is in significant moral, spiritual, political, and economic decline. Now, I, I know many do not think so. They call it progress. There's even a movement in the so-called church called progressive Christianity that adopts many ideals and values of our culture and denies many of the orthodox truths of the Christian faith. That's called progress. It's also interesting to note in the midst of this decline 
There are movements within Christianity called, are you ready, theonomy or reconstructionism. Now, while technically distinct, there is much overlap between the two. Theonomy is kind of the umbrella, and reconstructionism is a stream under that umbrella. Now, you should know, not, not always, but typically, theonomists and reconstructionists hold a post-millennial position. I won't take time to address all of the nuances of theonomy, but the word comes from two Greek words, theos and namos, that is God's law. And the belief is that society, all societies, should be governed by God's Old Testament moral and civil law. On the face of it, that sounds re reasonable, I guess. Uh, they, they say that, the, that that is the only answer to our societal woes, regardless of the form of civil government, democracy, republic, monarchy, totalitarianism, socialism, etc. The, the only answer for our world is to be submissive to God's law. The problem, that may sound okay, but the problem, of course, is even Israel, who received God's law, was never able to obey it. Hence, we have the new covenant by which Jesus and the gospel are truly the only ultimate answer. Why do I bring this up? For, for two reasons this morning. One, as I suggested, many, if not most theonomists are post-millennial. What, what's a big word? What does that mean? The idea, get this, the idea is that as the church grows and transforms society through God's law, then we will usher in a golden age of righteousness, a millennium, if you will, when civil government is at least highly influenced by the church, and righteousness will reign supreme. And once that happens, Christ will then return a post-millennial second coming. Here's a simple question for you this morning. Does that seem to be happening? Is that what we see happening in our nation and in our world? I know that the theonomists would argue, well, of course not. That's why we need to move toward theonomy or we'll always be in a mess. No, we will always be in a mess until Jesus comes back. Here's the second reason I bring this to your attention today. Are we unknowingly, ignorantly theonomists? What do I mean? Have we unconsciously or subconsciously thought that if we, listen, if we could just cast the right vote last Tuesday, get the right people in office, that we could right the ship, that we could somehow avert national disaster, that this or that party would help righteousness prevail. You do understand this world without any nation's exception is headed irrevocably to destruction. We will not usher in a golden age after which Christ will come. The golden age will only come when He comes. To be clear, I am not saying to not, I know that's a double negative, deal with it. I am not saying to not be engaged in politics. I am not saying to not vote. Tana and I did, and we saw a few of you early on Tuesday morning, proud of that. I, I am saying that we do not, listen, we do not put our hope here. 
My brothers and sisters, we are citizens of another country, and we long to see Christ return. We long for a city whose architect and builder is God. Then and only then will all things be made right. So cheer up. Jesus is coming back. You say, well, I wish he'd hurry up because this place is a disaster. Now you're sounding biblical. (laughs) Do you get it? So we've been studying through the book of Revelation, and it sure doesn't look like theonomy or postmillennialism. In this book, have the answer. It seems rather that things will get worse and worse until the return of Christ. So do not, do not pin your hopes here. Do not be discouraged or depressed if your candidate or your party did not win. Keep your eyes fixed on the eastern sky. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That is biblical. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you come and make all things right? Because we're not going to do it. We arrive today at Revelation chapter 10. And oh, by the way, here's some more good news for you. I'm going to cover the entire chapter today. November 13th, 2022, mark it down. (laughs) Miracles still happen. (laughs) Just about to finish the second series of judgments, the trumpet judgments. Remember, there there, there are three sets of Seven judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. I think that those are successive. Let me put the outline of the book back up to remind you where we are in the book. We saw the prologue at the beginning of chapter 1, followed by um, this glorious vision of Jesus, the exalted Christ, and then Him walking among the seven churches. And then we saw this vision of heaven in in chapters 4 and 5. I wish I would have spent months there. And some of you say, well, you did. Never mind. The, the seven seals, followed by the seven. Notice, I, I put this, uh, these subpoints intentionally. There's a pattern here. We saw the first six seals, followed by an interlude. Listen, these interludes are focused on believers. Then we see the seventh seal, which seems to contain, I think, the seven trumpets. Seven trumpets, the first six trumpets, which we just finished um, last week, and then an interlude. Focused on believers. See, it's a good thing you're here today. And then we'll see the seventh trumpet, which seems to contain the seven bowls, the seven signs, I think another interlude, perhaps, I don't know, the seven bowls, seven, finally, finally leading to the triumph of God, the new heavens and the new earth. Some of you are grinning and gritting your teeth and bearing it. We will eventually get to chapters 21 and 22. I can't wait either. This has been a most difficult book to study. To, to preach, to hear, but I am loving it because it is a great book and the timing could not be better. It's just what we need to hear in these days of disaster. And by the way, if your party won and you're celebrating in the streets, your hopes are in the wrong place too. We just finished the fifth and sixth trumpets and Chapter 9, where God began pouring out unprecedented wrath on earth dwellers or unbelievers. We've seen it as a technical term for unbelievers. And the fifth trumpet, locusts with scorpion tails and stings were released 
um, from the abyss, that is from the pit, to torment people for five months. And remember, while they, these people, while they longed for death, death would elude them. But, but, but then comes the, the sixth trumpet. Four fallen angels and their demonic hordes, their demonic armies of fierce horses and riders of some 200 million or better, twice myriads of myriads were released. It's an, an, an uncountable number, I think. They were given authority to kill one-third of the earth's population of earth dwellers, unbelievers. And yet, incredibly, as we saw last week in the last two chapters, or two verses of chapter 9, this was shocking. Listen, if, there was, if you want something to be discouraged about, this is it. In the last two verses, we found that they still refused to repent of their idolatrous worship of demons and of their sins of murder and sorceries and immorality and theft. In the midst of God's unprecedented wrath, brings us to our text today. There is this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, just like there was between the sixth and the seventh seal. The interlude, interlude in chapter seven contained two visions. Remember, one of the sealing of the 144,000 of God's people, and, and one a glorious view of heaven with 24 elders and the four living creatures, the myriads and myriads of angels. And, and then we saw this enormous crowd, a vast crowd of people in white robes from every nation. Don't miss this. Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue worshiping God and the, and the Lamb. We, we saw further that these people's robes had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Remember, that was meant to be an encouragement at the end of the six seals, seven, if you will, in the midst of mayhem and, and destruction. You're sealed and you're headed for heaven. It's supposed to encourage you. So also this interlude, almost two chapters long, is made up of two visions, and it is also meant to encourage us. Again, the timing, I think, is impeccable. If you find yourself discouraged by the events of this week more, the events of the last few years in our very broken world, we get some much-needed encouragement today. So let's read the text, Revelation chapter 10. I'm not even going to give you the verses because it's the whole thing. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. Here's what he, here's the oath, here's what he proclaimed, that there will be delay no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, and he is, as he preached to his servants, the prophets, then the voice, which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, 
and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. And it will be, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. But, but it, I, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Right? Ready to go out and face the world again? Hold on, I think it will be. It's an odd text, I admit that. But we remember this is apocalyptic literature. It's filled with meaningful imagery. So let me give you... Let me give you the, the outline of the text. We see the strong angel with a little book, and then the strong angel's oath or his proclamation, and followed by John, who consumes the, the little book, and then is recommissioned. Here's a question for you to ponder. Is it just John, or is it for us to consume the book and to share God's truth, even though it will cost us? S- sweet and bitter. Here we go. In the first, in the first four um, verses, we see another, another strong angel coming down from the heaven. He says another strong angel because a strong angel first appeared in chapter 5. Remember, he's the one that called out, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. Now, because of the similarity of this chapter with Daniel 12, which we'll look at shortly, someone to suggest that this strong angel is is Michael. You'll see that when we look at Daniel chapter 1. Lots of similarities Michael has mentioned there. Might be, could be Gabriel, some say, because Gabriel means strong one. Don't know um, for sure. What we do get is an incredible description of this angel. He, he comes down from heaven. He's clothed with a cloud. He's a rainbow on his head. Um, his face shone like the sun, and his feet, probably his legs as well, be, were, were like pillars of fire. Now, If you've been with us, does that description sound at all familiar? Some of it sounds like the description of Jesus in chapter 1. Face like the sun, feet of burnished bronze. Not only that, we know that when Jesus comes from heaven, um, we see over and over that he will come in the clouds. Not only that, this angel has a book in his hands, and we remember Jesus was the one who took the book from his father and, and opened it. This has caused some, with warrant, I understand it, to suggest that this strong angel is Jesus. However... I don't think so. I I would say, for example, Jesus is never called an angel um, in this book. Of the 67 times that the word angel is used, it is never used to refer to Jesus. He's got lots of titles in this book, but never an angel, lest it be here. Further, in verse 6, this angel swears by him who lives forever and created all things. That doesn't sound like something Jesus would say unless he said, I swear by me. Because he's the one who lives forever and created all things. Now, so most agree this is a strong angel who shared a close proximity to God and reflected, not necessarily possessed, but reflected many of God's attributes. His face, for example, shone because he was close to God. Just, I find this interesting. Just like Moses 
after he met with God on top of Mount Sinai. Remember, he'd come down from the mountain, had to put a veil over his face. I got to thinking about that. You know, here's this angel close to God. His face shines. Moses' face shines. And then I remember in Acts chapter 3 and 4 when, when Peter and John, they go to the temple and they heal that man who's, who is born lame. And then they get arrested, thrown in jail overnight. And the next day they get interrogated by the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, all of that. And then they take note that these men had been what? With Jesus. Something about them. You could look at them and tell they had been with Jesus. And then we go to Acts chapter 7 and we see Stephen who preaches the gospel uh, to, to the same group of people and they pick up stones to stone him and he looks up into heaven and his face appeared as an angel. It got me to thinking, what would it look like to spend so much time with Jesus that people could tell? You see, there's not a chance, Scott, that you are ever going to have an angelic face. That's not what I mean. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that we can spend so much time with Jesus that by our attitude and our actions, people can tell that we have been with Jesus. Amen. This angel had close proximity to God. I don't know about you, but I'd like that. He's obviously a very important figure, an angel who comes with a message from God. It's what an angel is, a messenger. He reflects the glory of God. The rainbow, perhaps, represents the mercy of God because that's what rainbows actually mean. And I know it's been co-opted by another group, but an angel reflects God's mercy. And cloud, perhaps, represents His presence as we see God often enveloped by a cloud. Verse 2 does say that he has a little book in his hand. Lots of discussion about this little book. It's a different word. Um, is it the same book that Jesus received from the Father in chapter 5 and opened when he broke the seven seals in chapter 6? Which would mean, if that's the case, the book went from the Father to Jesus to this mighty angel and then ultimately to John. Or is it different? Is it a different book? And if so, how is it different? Is it part of, a part of a chapter, perhaps, of the book which contains the rest of the story of Revelation? Maybe chapters uh, 10 and 11? We don't really know for sure, but I will at least say this. And if you're wanting a definitive answer, sorry, don't have one. Um, it seems to be further revelation from God concerning the end of the age and the one to come. And it's something important that we know. Keep prophesying, John. Notice, as God's representative, this angel puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. If you don't hear anything else this morning, here's the most encouraging part of the message today. I want you to hear it. Representing God's sovereignty over all the earth, over all that has happened, all that is going to happen. Do we need to hear that today? God is sovereign over everything. He raises leaders up and He takes them down. Three times the description, uh, this description, foot on the land, foot on the sea, appears. When he comes, when he swears an oath, and when John approaches him. Three significant times during this vision, making clear to us, listen, people, listen, God is in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. He orchestrates everything that we see happening from before time until the end of time. Be encouraged. Angel arrives and takes his place. Um, he cries out with a loud voice, just like the first strong angel in chapter 5, but this one sounds like a lion 
roaring. The word speaks of the low rumbling also of cattle or or oxen. A loud, low rumble which speaks with authority. Notice when he cries out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. These seven peals of thunder mean something because John calls them the, the definite article, the seven peals of thunder, as if the readers should understand. So who are these seven peals of thunder? Lots of guesses. Interesting, many point to the seven times the voice of God thunders in Psalm 29. Look at this. It's just really incredible. The voice, I put the word voice in bold so you can count them. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Family, have I been privileged to be in Lebanon? We've seen the cedars of Lebanon. They are enormous. He breaks them into pieces. He makes Lebanon, which is to the north, by the way, um, skip like a calf, and Syrian, which is a, another name for Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in the area, uh, skip like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Now that's to the south. Um, His voice is everywhere is the point. He shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, as a result, everything um, uh, says glory. This is a mighty God. It's incredible. Seven times the voice of the Lord thunders. It's powerful, majestic. It breaks cedars. It hews out flames of fire, shakes the wilderness, makes the deer calf, strips the forest bare. And it is suggested that many would have thought of this well-known psalm where the voice of the Lord thunders. Hear Him thunder because He is sovereign. He is in control. Of course, we also know the number seven in the book speaks of perfection. Perhaps it speaks of a perfect voice of thunder authority. Back in chapter four, when we got our first glimpse of heaven and God on his throne, we read, out of the throne come flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. That's interesting. We also noted that whenever we read the phrase flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, it is usually in the context of judgment. So these seven peals of thunder come at the end of the trumpet, um, awful trumpet judgments, and right before the even worse, the most terrible bowl judgments. But don't miss it. The seven peals of thunder uttered their voices, and when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, that's interesting. While loud and thunderous, these seven peals said something intelligible. They said something articulate. In fact, John was ready to write down what they said. We remember, for example, back in chapter 1, that he was told twice in that chapter to write down what he sees. John is writing. He, as he is receiving these visions, he doesn't want, you can just see him. He doesn't want, he's got his own book. He doesn't want to miss anything. And yet, as he is getting ready to record what the seven peals of thunder said, he hears a voice from heaven, perhaps uh, the voice of God or the Lamb, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Don't write it down, John. A few thoughts about that. First, <laughs> there has been no end to speculation as to what the seven peals of thunder said. Which I find interesting, since the voice from heaven said, don't write it down, people reading the book of Revelation should not know what was said, but that has not kept people from guessing. 
I can give you all of the suppositions, but they're guesses and probably all wrong. Second, it tells us, I think, that we do not know everything. Can you rest in that? While God has revealed to us through John what he wants us to know, we do not know everything, and that is okay because we are not God. It is fine to know exactly what he wants us to know, nothing more and nothing less. And that should perhaps keep us humble and keep us from speculating and guessing. No one knows the day or the hour, but that doesn't keep us from naming dates. Maybe we shouldn't. Now, this command to seal up what was spoken reminds us of Daniel 12, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. In fact, you, there's, there's a clear allusion to Daniel 12 in Revelation 10. You can't do Revelation 10 without looking at Daniel 12. Both are talking about the end of time. Both are, are told to seal up what was said, presumably until the proper time. Um, if what this, I'm saying until the proper time, there's coming a time when we will know what those seven peals of thunder um, said. Otherwise, why would John have recorded it? Why, why would, have it, would it have happened? I think we will know in its due time. But look at Daniel chapter 12 with me. Now, at that time, Michael, there it is, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And they suggest that he does here. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. I think what he's talking about, everyone agrees, he's talking about the end of time, this period of time that we're looking at in the book of Re Revelation. Um, until, and, and the people whose name are written in the book. What book is that? We haven't gotten to it yet. We will. There's a book, it's called the book of life. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Um, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is one of the clearest verses in the Old Testament, which speaks of life after death. That, that when we die, there is more to come. There is everlasting life and there is everlasting contempt. Those who have insight, you want to draw near to God? You want to... You want your face to shine with His glory? Here you have it. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. How is your face going to How are you going to look like Jesus? By sharing the truth of the gospel. Sharing righteousness with people. That's how you'll look like Jesus. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing. He got this vision at, at the bank of a river, one on this bank of the river and the, and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, this, he's receiving this information from this man dressed in linen, um, who was above the waters of the river. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. 
listen, I'm going to be getting into that in the spring when we, not here, when we study the book of Daniel, I'm going to be doing that on a Wednesday night during a core course, um, seven or eight week study on the book of Daniel because of the, all of these Old Testament allusions from the book of Revelation into the book of Daniel. Okay. So hold your breath. The point I want to make here is that as Daniel was, uh, that Daniel was told to seal up the book until the end of time, so also John was told to do the same thing. We notice this man dressed in linen above the waters of the river, likely an angel, raised his right hand and his left hand to swear by him who lives forever. Notice also the answer to how long will it be until the end for a time, times, and half time. We've not seen that yet, but we're going to start seeing it over and over in the book of Revelation. In fact, most think, I'll let you in on a little secret, most think it's about three and a half year period of time. So, our strong angel raised his right hand and swears by him who lives forever and ever, that is our eternal God who created everything to our eternal creator. Don't miss it. He has been forever. He's the one that created. He created everything that is. He'll be here after. He is eternal, meaning nothing takes him by surprise. He is sovereign and he is in control. And this angel then says, this is what I'm here to tell you. There will be delay no longer. What does that mean? Very simply, that the end has come and the events at the end will no longer be delayed. He goes on to verse 7. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet in chapter 11, then the mystery of God will be finished. I believe with quick unfolding, a quick unfolding of the successive bold judgments, the mystery of God will be consumed quickly. And answer, how long, O Lord? You've been asking that question. How long, O Lord, are we going to have to put it? It's coming. And it, when it gets here, it will come quickly. Now, in Scripture, mystery refers to things previously hidden but now made known. Usually refers to the gospel. Other things as well, but usually to the gospel. And I think that is included here. But I think here it includes all of God's plan the culmination of all the things that that John is unfolding in this book, we would never have known what the end entails from from before the creation until the very end, the eschaton, the mystery of God's rescue of the righteous and His judgment of the wicked. We would never have known this without this book. And when we arrive at this point of judgment in the future, the end will come. Notice, that this has been preached. That's an interesting word. It's the word that we normally use to speak of preaching the good news, euangelizo, the gospel. It speaks of evangelizing. Here it is the good news of God finishing. Hear this. My brothers and sisters, hear this. Of God finishing His eternal plan that He has told to the prophets all the way through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, to include John. It's all unfolding according to plan. Bringing us to our last point in our conclusion, two or three more minutes, hold on. Verses 8 to 11. John consumes the little book and is recommissioned to keep prophesying, even though the prophecy will include some bitter parts. Look at verses 8 to 10. The voice from heaven, likely either God on His throne or perhaps the Lamb, speaks again, go take the book, which is in the hand of the angel who stands on the scene in the land. So John goes and tells the angel, notice he doesn't take it. He says, "Uh, dude, could you give me the book? It's a big angel. The angel gives further instructions. Take the book 
and eat it. That's a bit weird, but it fits prophetic and apocalyptic tradition. It will be bitter in your stomach, he says, but sweet in your mouth. So John did, and it was indeed sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Again, this is an Old Testament illusion. When Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 2 and 3, don't have time to look at it, wish I did. Maybe I should have preached two sermons in chapter 10. When Ezekiel was told to prophesy, he was told to take the scroll that God gave him. It was filled with lamentations and mourning and woe. That's the end, last verse of chapter 2 in Ezekiel. It was a, this scroll, this message that he was to preach was a message to rebellious Israel who would not listen to Ezekiel. That would be a bitter result. But he was to prophesy anyway. God told him at this point, chapter 3, take the book, take the scroll, and eat it. And when he did, it was sweet like honey in Ezekiel's mouth. Now, we're not told that it was bitter in his stomach like John, but unlike it most likely was. Why do I say that? Because the words he shared, words of judgment to which people would not listen. Does that sound familiar? Just like here, people will hear about and even experience God's wrath, but they will not repent. So all this prophesying, all of this preaching, even though the end has come, they'll know it and they won't repent. That's bitter. John was to eat the book, which would be sweet in his mouth. All through Scripture, we find God's Word is sweet. Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I would ask, if, is that the way that we see God's word? Can't wait to get to it because it's sweet like honey, more precious than gold. Even though it has difficult truths. That's what this bitter in his stomach means. Most agree that the words left to be shared include further judgment of the earth dwellers, but it also includes, mark it down, it also includes the persecution of the righteous. That's bitter. You know the truth, and it's going to cost you. But in the end, God wins. Includes the vindication and rescue of God's people. While troubling and challenged, this is meant to be an encouragement. It is both bitter and sweet because God is in control. Verse 11, and, and they said to me, they could be the, the voices, the peals of thunder, whatever, you must prophesy again concerning many people and nations and tongues and kings. It's interesting. It's the third time we've seen a list like this, but this is the first time we've seen it as include kings. In fact, there's seven times that this list kind of appears, and most suggest that the first two are talking about the redeemed from every nation, people, and tongue. But the last five are talking about the people who refuse to repent. Everybody, even kings. John will prophesy to everyone, even kings, you are under God's authority. You need to hear that this week. Even presidents and governors, members of the, both houses of Congress, they are all under His authority. We preach to them. We don't, we don't withdraw 
We preach righteousness. We preach truth. And let the chips fall where they may. And some will repent and some will not. Chapter 11, after the seventh trumpet is sounded. I want you to hear these words. We'll see it in the next week or two. After the seventh trumpet is sounded, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Amen. It brings us back to the introduction. Where is all of this headed? Every people, nation, even this nation, if we still exist, will one day be ruled by its rightful ruler, King of Kings. And the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, who will reign forever and ever. So where then should we pin our hopes? Where do we place our allegiance? The message for you today is cheer up, my brothers and sisters. Our God is King, and He is in control. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is incredible truth. We're, we're so thankful for it. It's a, it's a little bit odd. It takes some unraveling. But as we, as we plumb the depths of your word, we are reminded over and over that you are in control and that you are good and that you will vindicate your followers, that you will rescue us. That will be sweet as we go through the bitterness of persecution. The, the, the bitterness of sharing and no one hearing and no one believing. The bitterness of this nation headed toward demise and destruction. It's bitter. But the sweetness of your word is the promise that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will make all things right. So we, we pray even so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.